Let's see if we can get into Proverbs. First of all, let me just mention that if you are joining us today as a visitor, we go through uh, the various material that the church requires or encourages all of the classes to cover. Uh, we have reached to this point in which we'll talk about today the issue of money and greed. And so we'll look at a couple of key passages in that regard. And then at the end, I always like to do an application. And given the fact that we are in the midst of such economic turmoil, I thought I'd share a few things that will get you thinking about that topic. And then we will be in this topic for many, many weeks because there's so many other issues in the Proverbs. Let me encourage you to maybe grab a Bible if you can and follow along. If not, I'll do my best to read those. And we're going to look at a couple of passages. First of all, in Proverbs. Proverbs 11, verse 4, we read, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. A little bit later over there in verses 28 and following, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind, and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. Turn over just a couple of pages, and we will now look at chapter 22, and that is verses 1 to 7. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. Train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slaver, slave of the lender. And one more passage, and that is in chapter 29, uh, verse 13. Over there. And we have, the poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. Quite a number of passages here, and again, for all of us to remember that when we talk about Proverbs, it's giving us general principles. Uh, certainly, if you raise children up in the way of the Lord, you would hope they would not depart from it. That's generally the case, but there are others. The statements about rich and poor and greed also are general. But it is interesting that you get this whole focus on money. And if you go back and look not only at the Proverbs, and I'm going to be looking at a variety of other verses here before we're done today, but if you go to the New Testament, you see that in the 39 parables of Jesus, 11 of them had to do with parables related to money. And I think the idea here is Jesus oftentimes used money as an illustration. As I've said before, if you want to know what people's priorities are, look at their checkbook. Um, and uh, look at their savings account, and uh, if you want to know also how they spend their time, look at their day timer. Of course, now with the modern things, look at their iPhone, I guess is what you say now. But nevertheless, that is the case. And so the teaching on money from Proverbs is very practical because, after all, Solomon was wealthy, and he really was very honest about the way the world works. First of all, we see this very famous phrase about the rich rule over the poor, and especially if the rich are 
having a loan. We're going to talk about debt in just a few minutes. But that is certainly one of the principles. Another is that a good reputation is more valuable than riches. Um, the fact is, if somebody says you're a man of integrity or a woman of integrity, I can trust you. That is certainly very important. And again, those who trust only in their riches rather than trust in the Lord will fall. Solomon also emphasized whether you're rich or poor, it's really not the issue. It's not what you own. It's what owns you. And we'll get into that in some more detail. But first of all, I always love to teach a little bit. I sometimes say this is almost like a seminary education. Uh, if you read the Proverbs, they use two different kinds of parallelism in Hebrew. The first is what's called synthetic parallelism. You see that in Proverbs 22, verse 2. You see it in Proverbs 29, verse 13. That's where the second line builds on the truth of the first line. So the first line says something. The second line undergirds that. That's what's called synthetic parallelism. If you take a seminary class on exegesis, that's what you will hear about here. And hear both of them talking about whether you're rich or poor, what God is the Lord of life. And so the one who determines your steps, he's our maker, he gives light to our eyes. But there's another kind of parallelism, and that's called contrasting parallelism. And that's a little bit different. That's where there's a contrast between the first statement and the second statement. And so that's a different kind of construction. And so it talks about here a contrast between those who trust in riches and what happens to those who don't, and those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. Then it uses this idea of the green leaf, and I didn't know this till I saw the commentary here. It's an image, which makes sense now, of fertility, of prosperity. It was used oftentimes in the ancient Near East uh, to actually be a contrast to a brown leaf that would be actually falling off the tree that is dead. So that's where this idea of falling is. And so again, it's the idea that the righteous are those who fear the Lord and trust in him, not necessarily in their wealth. And then Solomon said that after death, all the money in the world will do you no good at the day of judgment because you cannot, as he says, buy your way out of it. So it's a very important idea. So again, the point I'm making here is wealth isn't good or bad in and of itself. It's a tool that can be used both for good or evil. We can see, as we did today, the Joe Perry opportunity that has been all of us taking advantage of and seeing so many young children that will go and play sports, that will hear the gospel, and there is a way in which wealth was used to advance that. Uh, Pastor Graham today talked about, we're up to, I think, $200,000 that we've been able to send over to Ukraine. And so you can see some places where money has been used in such a very good way. At the same time, of course, we can see money being spent right now to uh, help plan parenthood and, and to advance gambling um, and all sorts of other things and to promote alcoholism and all sorts of other things. So, again, the point is, is that what we should understand is wealth can be used both for good or evil. But the real issue is, is that we should not be putting our trust in wealth, um, but ultimately a trust in the Lord. You know, I've got in front of me right here a $5 bill. And if you look on the back here, it says, in God we trust. Now, theoretically, we say that we trust in God. But sometimes it's more like in gold we trust. 
or in government we trust, which I think would be a really bad idea right now, but we'll get into that in just a minute. And so again, the issue is not money is the root of all evil, but really in 1 Timothy 6.10, it is the love of money that's the root of all evil. And so that's what's being expressed right there. Let's look at a couple more passages here, because once again, we have uh, Solomon reminding us of how to think about these issues. First of all, Proverbs 10, verse 2. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Then in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. A little bit later we read, verses 23, The desire of the righteous ends only in good, the expectation of the wicked in wrath. One gives freely, it grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. The one who waters him will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing on the head of him who sells it. And whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Just a reminder of the blessings that come sometimes when indeed we are generous with our gifts and our tithes and our offerings and things of that nature. Then in chapter 20, verse 10, we read, Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Verse 23, we read, Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. And finally, in verse 28, we read a whole section which, again, focuses on the responsibility as believers. And we read from verse 20 and following, A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Whoever robs his father or his mother and says, This is no transgression, is a companion to a man who destroys. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. When the wicked rise, people hide themselves, and when they perish, the righteous increase. A lot of very strong statements there, but first of all, he talks about the fact that those who are out just to be greedy, gain treasure for themselves, will ultimately lead to death. He says, gaining wealth is like a fleeting vapor or a snare of death, that those who hoard wealth for themselves will fall, but those who give freely actually will be blessed. We also see that he warns that people that are cheating, we see all those verses about unequal weights and measures. That shows up time and time again, not only in the Proverbs, but in the condemnation that the Old Testament prophets gave against Israel and about those individuals who were greedy and unjust. And if nothing else, Solomon wants his sons, and ultimately Israel, and then us by vicarious lessons, to understand that, that riches and power may come to you. After all, if you are the sons of Solomon, are you going to have great wealth? Yes, you are. 
And so one of the great concerns that I've heard from many wealthy people is, when I pass this wealth on to my children and grandchildren, will they be good stewards of this? And Solomon was thinking that as well, because riches and power may come to you, but again, you have to understand how to wisely use that before the Lord. Also, it talks about the fact that wealth sometimes is described as which is gained hastily. And so it's sort of this idea of a get-rich-quick scheme. It doesn't mean that if God has blessed you simultaneously and you became wealthy, that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. I know of this one individual that's been a supporter of Point of View and Probe who one day um, had land that all of a sudden they realized there was a lot of oil on it and they went from there to there almost instantaneously. But again, they understood that that would be something that they were not expecting and could give off to other organizations and other ministries. But sometimes the ancient world was really concerned about get-rich-quick schemes. And if you haven't gone out on YouTube, type in the word like scam or schemes, and it is amazing how many individuals have been seduced into these get-rich-quick schemes that have been complete disasters. And right, frankly, right now, there are a lot of people scamming you that will tell you that, well, you um, have a charge with Amazon or PayPal or something else, and so you have to give over all of your uh, confidential information where well, really what they're trying to do is drain your bank account. And so there's a warning even in the scriptures that even if there were get-rich-quick schemes back in the first century and even back in the time of the Proverbs in the 15th B.C. century, there are times today in which we see that. And again, it usually the wicked that offer easy money, but ultimately, most of the time, rich individuals gain through a long process of um, actually being diligent. And again, greed isn't about having, it's about wanting. So it really ties very much into this idea of covetousness. And I think it's interesting that Proverbs tie this idea of unjust gain with also this selfish desire to gain wealth. And so greed oftentimes trades integrity for wealth. And those who trust in the Lord make a lot of money, but they don't hoard it because they recognize that they're just stewards and they want to pass it on to others. And so some great messages that we've heard in the past, even from the pastor, about the importance of giving. Finally, as a contrast, it also talks about those who trust in the Lord are the ones who really will be enriched. Again, I point out the fact that we supposedly on our money say, in God we trust. But I guess we'll have to ask ourselves, do we really trust the Lord? Especially in just a few minutes, I talk about some of the economic uncertainty in the future. But here it's a play on words because it's the idea that those people that trust in wealth, they're going to be disappointed. But those who trust in the Lord, they're going to be blessed. And it sort of reminded me where Jesus says, whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will save it. And once again, a very important principle there. Also, a reminder that riches don't last forever, um, but uh, that's the case. You can't take it with you. You might remember the old story of one of the gangsters in Chicago. And they, um, when he died, found that he had only a few dollars in his pocket. And I heard one young girl said, what great timing. <laughs> you can't take it with you, so you might as well spend it all at that time. Jesus uses the great example of a man who built bigger barns. But how does he refer to that individual? 
as a fool uh, because he spent all his time trying to build up his wealth, build up barns, and again, he never was able to enjoy them. And again, we also see this idea that really focusing on wealth sometimes can be a form of slavery. Uh, Solomon concluded that those who have uh, love money never have enough. You probably have seen that before. Uh, they asked one of these uh, multimillionaires in the last part of the 19th century, uh, do you have enough? He said, nope, not yet. You know, there's never enough for a person who is addicted to money. And so, again, if your whole life works around trying to work harder, make more money, and that becomes your guard, God, you are going to ultimately be disappointed. So finally, we have a couple of other very important passages here to talk about. And in Proverbs 23, I guess I've been ahead of looking at those. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. Which I love that illustration of the money just kind of flies right away. Then in chapter 27, we read uh, verses 23 and following, a very significant section. Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever, and does a crown endure to all generations. And finally, in chapter 30, we read verses 7 and 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane in the name of God. And so I think we see a very good illustration there as well that Ultimately, when we're talking about money, not only does it not satisfy, it's like a winged eagle or like a bird that just flies away, but it's also a false uh, pursuit because it's a fool's errand. It doesn't really give you what you're looking for. If you think about it, it isn't really that we want money. We want what we think money can give us. We think money can give us security. We think money can give us love. We think money can give us happiness and joy, but I think we figured out that isn't the case. Most of those things simply come from the Lord, and money's version is superficial, it's empty, and it's fake. Lots of money can affect the rich and poor and everyone in between. As I said before, it's not so much how much you have, it's about your attitude towards it. And isn't it interesting that Solomon here perhaps the wealthiest man at that time, simply at the end says, what we should ask ourselves is, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me enough food, but I don't need any extra. And so I think it's the idea here that sometimes when we look at this, we can see both extremes. Sometimes individuals that are very wealthy, the wealth owns them. But sometimes people that are poor and looking for what can provide for them the next day, they also find themselves focused on money. And I think the lesson we're learning here is, if anything, it's a responsibility for us to be good stewards of the resources that we have. Well, how do we apply this? You know, we've been talking about this idea of money and greed. I think most of you in this room are saying, yeah, maybe occasionally I've been greedy, but that's probably not my problem. But I would suggest to you that one attribute of greed manifests itself in debt. Now, when I say that, I recognize that some people are in debt for very good reasons. 
Some people are in debt maybe because they actually were very honest in a business, in a corporation, and somebody cheated them out and they had to declare bankruptcy. Uh, you may be, some people may be in debt because you decided to provide for your elderly parents and it cost you more and so you had to do that. But let's at least acknowledge that a lot of people are in debt because they spent more than they took in. And what does the proverb say about that? Well, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is a servant to the lender. And so I think when we talk about greed, we have to tie greed into sometimes this idea of debt. And also, it's interesting in the Psalms, it talks about the wicked borrows and does not pay back. In just a minute, I'm going to go from individual debt to government debt, which is very large. And does anybody seriously think the government is going to try to pay all back all that debt? And so I think it's worth applying some of those principles. But let's talk about that for just a minute. My little booklet on debt, we talk about all kinds of debt. And that's kind of in the news right now because we found that credit card debt is at least at a million dollars. By the way, these numbers came from before the pandemic. I think some of those numbers have changed. But certainly we have at least a trillion dollars of credit card debt in America. A trillion dollars. That's 1,000 billion, okay? That's a, bill, that's a million million. That's a lot of money. And again, some people might say, yeah, well, I've got credit card debt, but I pay it off every month. Well, good, because more than half of Americans do not pay off their balances. So you can see that those debt levels are rising on consumers. Student loan debt. That's been in the news quite a bit lately, hasn't it? Uh, 1.5 trillion. Saw so some people say 1.4 trillion. Uh, Friday I was talking about the fact there's one that says 1.75 trillion. It could be that they're adding at that point private debt, not just government debt, because you know, and some student debt is through private institutions. Most of it's through the federal government. But it's been in the news. Why? Because our president has said that by August 31st he'll make a decision as to whether or not he wants to completely cancel all the student debt in America. If you can't believe that. Matter of fact, the uh, reason August 31st is because there was an attempt to say that during the pandemic, we would not require those who actually have a student debt to pay it, and it would not accrue interest, and they keep postponing it, and they postpone it again to August 31st. You think about what that would mean. you know. And again, when you say cancel debt, it says, okay, you're free from that. It's going, no, somebody has to pay for that. Who would that be? I don't know. I think it might be you. But anyway, that's just a possibility. And then auto loan debt, $1 trillion as well. And again, the numbers look at the fact that once we look at those numbers, we recognize that indeed uh, there are a lot of people with car loans. Now, debt isn't necessarily wrong. Sometimes debt can be used as an instrument. But it just recognizes that before we point our finger at the federal government, which we're now going to do, we have to recognize there's a few fingers pointing back at us. And it's a little hard for us to call for the government to balance its budget when we sometimes, as Americans, haven't balanced our budget. Now, some of that it may be for very good reasons, but I think some of it has to do with what? Greed, which we just talked about. Okay, let's look at the federal government. I don't know if you've ever been to the U.S. debt clock. That's a screenshot. The thing that I hate whenever I go there is this thing is going tick, 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 tick. I mean, you can just literally see the debt piling up. And uh, that's a lot to take in there. But again, you can go to the U.S. debt clock. But I want to point out two things to get you thinking about where we are as a government. The first is, what is the national debt? $30 trillion. Now, you can say, well, I didn't vote for that. Yeah, but a lot of Americans did. 
I mean, again, to put this in perspective, some of us with gray hair or no hair at all can remember when Ronald Reagan came into power as the president of the United States and the national debt was a little less than a trillion dollars. From George Washington all the way through Jimmy Carter, less than a trillion dollars of national debt. Which, frankly, might have been a pretty good investment when you think about that. We had an American Revolution. We had a Civil War. We had the interstate to commerce. We had uh, the uh, Trans-Pacific Railroads. We had all sorts of things. We had World War II. We had even the Vietnam War. But we've gone from $1 trillion to $30 trillion. Now, if you want to part pointing fingers, guess what? I can show you a picture of the national debt. And it's gone up whether we had a Republican president or a Democratic president has gone up, whether we'd have a Republican-controlled Congress or a Democratic-controlled Congress. Some presidents and some members of Congress have moved it faster than others, but that's where we are. Now, why do we have that? Well, that's the second picture here, and that is we have a budget deficit every year of $2 trillion. Now, that's even more amazing because the federal uh, treasuries have more money coming into it than the history of this country. More than $4 trillion this year came into the federal treasury. $4 trillion. Uh, $4.1 trillion. And yet, it's $2.1 trillion deficit because we spend $6.2 trillion. Again, these are numbers that are literally astronomical. You know, we talk about astronomy. These are astronomical numbers. But let me make it easier. Imagine, let's go back to this, 41, uh, we'll change 4.1 to 41. Imagine you're making $41,000 a year, and yet you're spending $62,000 a year, and you're going into debt $21,000 every year. Every year. And that is, again, an illustration of how we're there. This has caused a real problem because somebody has to cover the difference between what we bring in and what we spend. And what we've always done in this government is we issue U.S. Treasuries. And those Treasuries are purchased by Americans, but more recently they've been purchased by the Federal Reserve. Now, you can look over here at 2008, and you can see that the amount of debt held by the Federal Reserve was about $1 trillion until 2008, and that was our major recession that we had there in 2008. Remember all that? Banking, housing, all of that. And then it kept rising. But eventually, under Barack Obama, the Federal Reserve wanted to try to taper some of that down. See how it goes down just a little bit there? But then the stock market had a problem. They had what's called a taper tantrum. And so pretty soon they began to increase it. And then we have the pandemic. And what happens there? Boom. Just shoots up. And you say, well, then certainly they'd want to taper. No, it just has gone up ever since then. It does tend to go down just a little bit now. And that's the focus because the Federal Reserve says, no mas. We can't buy any more of the debt. Well, okay. Then... We've up until now had sometimes federal governments buy our debt, but they are starting to say the same thing. Let me show you that picture. If you look at the owners of our national debt, what's number one? China. 
Now, in just a few minutes, I'm going to show you why China is not going to buy any more of our debt. As a matter of fact, they're going to let all that, all those treasuries roll off of their balance sheet. I'll explain that in just a minute. But even number two, you might say, well, Japan, they're our friend. Well, Japan right now is having a trade deficit and a budget deficit. The, and as a matter of fact, the Japanese yen compared to the dollar is just going drop down. So they're going to, first of all, not buy any more of our treasuries. And second of all, they're going to let the rest of those rule off. Because, you know, you have one years and five years and ten years. I mean, we'll get into all the financial stuff. But it illustrates, again, one of these big questions that a lot of people are having about our future. One of the things that's been so interesting is, is this is an article from Wall Street Journal that everybody's quoting from because it points out that what happened to Russia has caused all the nations of the world to open their eyes for the first time. Because, and this is a good example of where something in Ukraine is coming to affect our economy, uh, Russia found themselves in a situation where, as the pastor shared today, they, of course, moved military into Ukraine, and the response from the United States and the EU has been what? Well, it has been to freeze Russian financial accounts and then shut off their access to foreign reserves. And so, in the past, there's always been what's known as sovereign immunity, and now you have the 11th largest uh, economy in the world that's just been closed down by the U.S. and the EU. And all sorts of other countries are looking at this saying, I wonder if this is going to happen to us. Meanwhile, some of us that are individuals looked at what happened in Canada. Because in Canada, which is the 10th largest economy, which is a very uh, vibrant democracy, when the truckers showed up, in Ottawa, you remember what happened, they were able to freeze those bank accounts and even the financial accounts, not only the truckers and supporters. So a lot of individuals were saying, I always just thought that money in my bank was money I could pull back out. And that's why a lot of people are starting to be a little bit uneasy. But let's go back to China for just a minute, because this came out in one of the China pieces in which the uh, economists in China are saying, well... We um, are changing our minds. They've been the largest holder of foreign reserves in the world, and they recognize now they may be the next economic target, certainly if they decide to go into Taiwan. But one Chinese economist put it this way. They never expected the U.S. would freeze a country's foreign current reserves one day, and the action has fundamentally undermined the national credibility of our international monetary system. And so, of course, China right now, as I showed you, is holding more than a trillion dollars of American dollars, of which three trillion of foreign reserves. But how much do you think they're going to buy of U.S. Treasuries in the future? Well, then, if they don't buy them, who will? We will have to. Because the banks are saying, we can't afford it. Federal Reserve says, we're kind of full up. The foreigners are saying that. And so my suggestion is, and again, I don't claim to be a prophet or a son of a prophet or even a financial analyst, but I think it's quite possible that all of a sudden we're going to be hearing people saying, you know, it's our patriotic duty to go and buy these U.S. Treasuries. Which, by the way, are only paying 2% with inflation is what? 8.5%? You can kind of figure that out. And, you know, for those of us who might think back to our grandparents, some of you younger ones, your great-grandparents, during the 1940s, they bought war bonds because it was their patriotic duty. How patriotic do you think Americans are today? 
So what they may do instead is require that these various financial instruments be purchasing them and require that your 401k, your IRA is going to have to buy more and more because we've got to figure out some way to finance more and more spending. And more and more spending creates one other issue, which again just reminds us that as we look at this issue of inflation, we're going into unprecedented times. What a good time to say we trust in the Lord, not on our wealth. Because inflation has been increasing. The inflation rate right now is 8.5%. There's every reason to believe it's going to be over 9% the next month because we can see what's happening in the individual month. And so we are going to unprecedented times. Those of you that lived in the 1970s might remember this. And all the kids here going, don't know anything about that, you know, and even some of the younger ones. But we remember what it was like to have inflation at that level. And there is a very good reason for that as well. And that is the money supply. This is the M2 money supply from the Federal Reserve. You can see that it's been going up. It went up quite a bit, of course, during the recession. But then when we hit the um, pandemic, what happened? It went vertically. And so the bottom line is, I think we as Christians are going to have to take seriously some of the things that Solomon is warning us about to be good and wise stewards of the resources we have. If I haven't caused a little bit of anxiety here, I don't know, but I think I probably have. But can you imagine what non-Christians out there are thinking right now that aren't trusting in the Lord? This is why I agree with Scott Turner. This may be harvest time. We're seeing more people in Ukraine becoming Christians than ever before. And when all of a sudden the economy goes the wrong direction, this may be an opportunity for us to really stand strong and say, we trust in the Lord, not in our wealth. But do the Proverbs have anything to say about how to handle our money? Well, yeah, a little bit. Also in the wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, for example, the, Solomon says, divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. In the New Testament, even uh, James says, no human can accurately and consistently predict the future. So I think a wise individual right now might just begin to think about, maybe I need to be diversified. You know, those people say, I'm going to put all my money in uh, uh, the FANG stocks. You know, that's Facebook and Amazon and Apple. You know, I'm going to put all my money in Disney. Oh, that wasn't such a good idea this week, was it? Uh, you know, oh, it just didn't turn out so well. Or I'll say, I'll put all my money in real estate. you remember 2008? I mean, there's a sense in which there is going to be a need for us as believers to wisely manage our resources like never before. And that's why I'm glad we have a Prestonwood Foundation. We also have some very godly men and women in here that know how to handle finances and work in the area of finance and accounting. And we need to help each other because I think we are headed for a different time. Because, as I said, we need to trust in the Lord with our wealth and ultimately be good stewards of what God has provided. Well, I talked a little bit about some of the little booklets I have, but again, that's one of the things we're spending more and more time talking about on radio because I just believe we're going into sort of an unprecedented time. And what a great opportunity to trust in the Lord and recognize that Solomon said, let's trust in the Lord, not in our wealth, because in some respects, we see how that wealth is like a bird just flying away if we're not careful. Parker? Parker?